Thanks, Shana. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you here this morning and uh, worship with you. Just really felt something of the, the, the presence of God, the sweet presence of God. And when we're singing, we are friends of God. I am a friend of God. I just, it seems like there's no truth that could be more profound than that one. Uh, I said this last night, and I sense it again this morning, that if, um, if that really gets on the inside, that you really do know you're a friend of God. It's not just a theoretical thing in your head, but it gets in your heart. Um, and you're secure in that friendship, then whatever problems you may have in life, they're not really problems. <laughs> yeah, we all got problems, but, but I'm a friend of God. And it seems that it puts everything in perspective. I mean, if I got that going for me, well then, whatever. Yeah, so I just, I just feel real blessed, tremendously blessed to be, just be able to speak into, you know, it just occurs to me that there's several hundred here in this auditorium, and, and over the weekend there's several thousand, and through podcasts there's uh, three times that many. And that many stories, where, where all of our lives are stories, and they, they all intersect in this moment. We, we have all these stories here, and God's just involved in every one of them, but it brings us here, and, and they intersect, and we get to worship together, and then I get to you know, study the Bible and share it. I mean, I got the best job in the world. <laughs> it really, this is, I get to like, just talk to that, so I feel very blessed. We're uh, coming down the runway here, the final stretch of uh, the Gospel of Luke, which we've been in for six years. And I think we've got two more sermons, and then we're, we're on to something else. I think we're going to look, look at Colossians this summer, which will probably take us another six years at our pace. But I, I, So we're talking here about the resurrection, and, and we've entitled this message, The Fact of the Matter. Because this is a message about matter, matter, physical stuff. It's about how matter matters to God. Matter matters. I know that sounds tremendously boring, but you will find out that it is not. So we're in Luke 24, and we're starting with verse 36. It says, while they were still talking about this. Now, you remember last week, uh, Jesus appeared to the two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, and it was a really kind of a funky, odd thing, and we talked about the ambiguity of, of life and, and of God and stuff and how that works to our advantage if we use it right. Um, well, now, now the two disciples that we saw last week, they're now with the 11, and the 11 have said, oh, he's risen because he's appeared to Peter. Finally, there's a credible witness. They didn't believe the women, but now that it happens to a man, all of a sudden it's a, it's a true story. So they're all talking about this. Sexism of the first century. Jesus himself stood among them. As they're talking, boom, all of a sudden Jesus is there. And he said to them, peace be with you. <laughs> Hello. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost, which you can understand because he just popped in the middle of their gathering there. Uh, what else is it going to be? It looks like a, the, the word there can be spirit or apparition. Something doesn't seem like a normal physical body. Uh, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. The, the phraseology there could, could, it has a connotation of it's the real me. Not some, you know, pseudo-me, some apparition of me. It's the real me. Touch me and see, he says. A ghost, spirit, an apparition does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So on the one hand, he seems like an apparition. He just pops out of nowhere. Physical things don't do that. On the other hand, he's got flesh and bones. So this is... He's, real, he's really physical, he's really matter, uh, and yet he's a different kind of matter, or a transformed matter, because he's operating in ways that, that our physical bodies usually don't. 
And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? You want proof? I'll give you proof. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Which obviously shows that those of us who are called to be vegetarians or vegans can't feel righteous about it because Jesus ate broiled fish. God convicts you of that, then he convicts you, but it's not a rule. Don't get too excited, carnivore. Because <laughs> his point here was simply to say, I don't think Jesus was hungry. He might have been, for all I know. I've never been dead for three days. Maybe it does make you hungry, but, but uh, he's proving to them. <laughs> he's proving to them that, uh, that, that he's, he's, real, he's really physical. An apparition of ghosts can't eat. And so here Jesus eats uh, this, this fish. Which really raises some interesting questions like, uh, you know, if you eat fish as a transformed, physical, resurrected being, what happens to that fish? Does it take a while to digest and become transformed fish? I mean, he passes through walls. Does the fish he just ate stay behind? Ooh, that'd be kind of gross. Uh, a lot of questions here. Who knows? Reality is far stranger than fiction. Jesus said, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. You guys just take, you're really slow here. I've been telling you this for about two years now. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, showing that understanding scriptures is more than just an intellectual activity. It's a spirit activity, and the grace of God, and the power of God, and the spirit of God has got to be involved to open up the reality of, of scripture to us. And then he said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. He's referring to the Holy Spirit here. But stay in the city, the city of Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. And this refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost uh, 40 days later after this happened. I want to talk about Jesus' flesh and bones, the resurrected flesh and bones of Jesus, the matter, the resurrected matter of Jesus. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, help us to collapse all of our prior judgments about things, to receive your word fresh and new, and to let it penetrate into our hearts deeply. And Sometimes things, God, that seem trivial to us are actually very, very important. And sometimes things that seem very important are actually very trivial. Give us your heart, your priority, your wisdom as we study this text. Open our minds to Scripture the way you did to these disciples. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to confront here a very uh, deeply rooted and widespread, what I think is a misconception. I'm hoping by the end of this message you will agree with me. It's a, it's a, a very traditional view that I think uh, trips us up in some ways. And we need to address it. And this passage provides an opportunity to, to do this. In, in the traditional way of thinking, the majority of Christians in our history have thought this way, at least from about the 3rd and 4th century on, maybe even before that. The idea is that there's a, there's a radical dichotomy or separation or gulf between heaven and earth. A gulf between things that are spiritual and things that are physical. Um, uh, there's a category of heaven, there's a category of earth. And under heaven comes spiritual stuff, under earth comes physical stuff, matter. Under the heaven category is our soul. Under the physical category is our body. And they're two very different things. 
And generally speaking, the things that are, are under the category of heaven seem to be good, and the things that are under the earth are, are less good. They're bad. There's a prejudice against matter, something defective about matter. Under heaven, we tend to associate things that are eternal, last forever. Under earth are things that are temporal. So therefore, they're not really that important. They're things that pass away. Under heaven, we, have the, we tend to associate that with truth. But under the earth, we tend to associate that with falsehood. I've, I, I've had people say to me, I can't wait to just shed this, this body so that we'll be able to see clearly. As though it was our body and our, our, our physicality that was keeping us from seeing truth. There's something intrinsically off with matter. That's why the common view is that when you die, the main thing is that it frees your soul to go to heaven. Uh, you, you, we, we talk this way sometimes in, in traditional language. We're going to put off this mortal flesh. We, it's like we put off uh, the, our bodies the way you would a suit. You know, and, and, and the, the butterfly gets out of the cocoon. I've, seen, I've heard that metaphor a number of times at funerals. And now we're free to fly, putting off this mortal flesh. And, and going to be with the Lord. And, and that's the, the great hope uh, of the, the Christian faith in, in many people's minds. The goal is to die, leave this body, leave the earth, and go to heaven. And then we'll be instantaneously perfected. And what that means then is that everything else that's physical, everything else about this earth, well, it, it's sort of unimportant. Uh, these are sort of just the physical trappings, the environment, the animals, everything else that's physical. It's all going to pass away. It's sort of just a, a penultimate sort of a deal, it's sort of the furniture in the room that we have to pass through to get to the real show. And the real show is spiritual, not physical. The real show is heaven, and there's nothing physical about it. So there's not really any need to care for the environment or to care about animals. Uh, it's all just dust anyway. It's all going to fall into nothingness. Why would you, you know, take time to tidy up the furniture on the Titanic? It's all going to go to waste. The one thing that matters, we're often taught, in Western Christianity anyways, is the salvation of our individual souls. It's the only thing that really lasts forever. So there's this big gulf between the spiritual and the physical. And, and we are taught that the, the, the spiritual, our soul, is, is sort of encased in this body, but, but, but it, it, the body is really not a part of us. Now... You can understand why that view is very popular, why it's been widespread throughout history. A lot of people have believed this. Um, because, on the one hand, everything we see is going to pass away, right? There's not, there's not one thing you can look at that's physical or touch or, or in any, that has anything to do with matter that isn't going to, according to the laws of physics as they operate right now, going to disappear. It's going to, all usable energy will, will be used up. And all matter, which is simply quantified energy, will, be, uh, will, will dissipate and come to nothingness. And so we look at the, the, the transitoriness or the transiency, the temporariness of everything. There's a part of us that knows that so, we're more than that. Uh, something's got to be eternal. Something had to always be and always, always will be. And it, but it can't be matter, we think. And so it must be something that's anti-matter or non-matter. And we call that spiritual. And, and so there's this kind of intuition. And this teaching I just shared sort of taps into that intuition. Uh, sometimes we feel trapped in our bodies. You ever feel trapped in your body? You feel alien? You know, it's, it's just kind of odd. You're, the, the, your consciousness center is three and a half pounds of noodles, give or take a couple ounces, trapped in this cranium here, and you have to access the external world through your eyes and the senses and all that kind of stuff. And it just feels like you're locked in there sometimes, doesn't it? Or am I just kind of weird? Like, like, would you ever get like so sick you just want to push the ejection button? I like, I want to get out of this body. I hate my body. It's, you know, it, it just feels like you don't belong here. It's just everything is painful. 
Ever feel like that? Maybe this is me. Press the ejection button. But see, that feeds into this kind of idea that there's this big dichotomy, this difference, this gulf between the spiritual and the physical, the soul and the body. Sometimes we even get mad at our bodies. You ever get mad at your bodies? You don't like the way the body looks or the way the body feels or the way the body acts. It does things that you don't want it to do and it doesn't do the things you want it to do. Uh, those of you who are over 50 know what I'm talking about. And so there's this kind of like, I am mad at my body, which shows that I'm more than my body or I'm not really my body. So this view is very understandable. It taps into kind of our common experience. Having said this, this, this idea that there's this, that this something negative, something wrong with matter, and where a spirit is good, and, and we're sort of, this, we, have this, we walk around in this contradiction. That view, even though it's very understandable, I submit to you is not at all biblical. It, it goes back at least to Plato, five centuries before the time of Christ, and actually... I think I can show that it predates him in Western culture. And in Eastern culture, it goes back even further. You'll find it in the Upanishads and the Vedas. It's, a, it's a, this assumption that spirit and matter are very different things. Uh, it it uh, is, is foundational to Hinduism and Buddhism. That's why the goal of those religions are to uh, mortify the flesh and release the spirit, to enter into nirvana or oneness with Brahman or Atman or however you want to phrase it. And so it's to escape our bodies, to escape this process of reincarnation where we're born again into the physical world. That, I submit to you, is not at all the biblical worldview. From a biblical perspective, the ancient Jewish perspective, there is nothing wrong with matter. Matter is good. God created matter. Genesis 1, God created the physical world, and he said, it is good. He created the land and the sea, and he said, it is good, and created the, the, the vegetation, and said, it is good, and created the animals of the sea, and the animals of the air, and the animals of the land. And he says, it is good. He created man and woman, and said, it is very good. God affirms matter. God created matter. God, matter was his idea. Matter matters to God. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, it's not divine. We're never to worship it. It's different from God, but it is still good. God likes matter. That's why he created it. The problem that we wrestle with is not because matter is matter. The problem is because all the issues that we have are due to two things. One is that uh, free agents on an angelic level, angels who are in charge of cosmic real estate, rebelled against God and then used their authority at cross purposes with God. And then we who were in charge of uh, real estate at an earthly level, we rebelled against God and now often use our authority at cross purposes with God. So everything right now is screwed up. I mean, it, it, nothing works the way it's supposed to uh, work. Everything runs down. The, the creation has been subjected to decay and, and death and destruction and the laws of nature work against us as often as they work for us. Everything's messed up. But that's not because matter is matter. Matter is good. No, it's because free agents now use their authority to corrupt matter and use it in ways that God never intended. In the Jewish worldview, the biblical worldview, matter is good. So this, this idea that, that spirit is good and matter is bad, or at least not as good as spirit. Soul is good, but our bodies are bad. All of that kind of thinking is simply not biblical. Now, it's true that everything physical needs to be brought under the authority of God. Because everything needs to be brought under the reign of God, the rule of God. And so there's parameters and there's a proper order to things. Everything has to be brought under the reign of God. But given that, given those, that provision that we do it under the order of God, it is good and necessary to affirm the goodness of matter, to celebrate physical stuff, to celebrate physical food and drink 
and, and, and the physical world to smell the flowers. Sex within the parameters of God is good. Good tasting food is good. Exercise is good. Enjoying the physical creation is good. The Christian faith that we understand from a biblical perspective is a very this world affirming kind of a faith. It's not at all like Hinduism or Buddhism where we want to get, it, get away from it and escape it. No, we want to affirm it and celebrate it. In fact, affirming the goodness of physical existence within the proper order of God can be an act of worship. Because we're not worshiping it. We don't worship the earth or anything that's physical. But we worship the creator of all that's physical by enjoying it and using it in its proper form. The Christian faith from a biblical perspective is a very this-world-affirming faith. God likes matter so much. Now hear this. That he plans on redeeming it. Uh, God never abandons stuff that is dear to him. He doesn't give up. He doesn't lose. Uh, and, and God likes matter. He created it. He doesn't give up on creation. He doesn't give up on the earth. He doesn't give up on real estate. His plan is to save it and redeem it. Here's a passage that just flies in the face of this Platonic uh, philosophy or this Eastern philosophy we've been talking about that kind of denigrates uh, matter. Listen to this. Uh, from Romans chapter 8. It's a profound passage. The creation. Paul's talking about the physical creation. This one, the one that we're in. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, to be manifested. And what he's really getting at there is to be reinstated as the viceroys, the, the, the lords under the lordship of the Lord uh, of this earth. Uh, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Oh, this creation can be frustrating, can it? It's been subject to frustration. But God did that in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And, and that's why it's frustrating, because it's all decaying. It's all falling apart. Everything falls apart. And the hope is that we'll be freed from this bondage of decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, every bit of it, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Man, that's some serious groaning. Right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we're part of this whole creation, aren't we? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Notice this. It's not redemption from our bodies. It's the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are part of the physical creation that God's in the process of redeeming. For in this hope we were saved. All of creation groans, and all of creation will eventually be liberated, and our bodies are part of the physical creation, so our bodies will be liberated. From a biblical perspective, salvation isn't from matter. It's the salvation of matter, or at least salvation with matter. The goal isn't to escape creation and go into the by and by up in there in the sky. No, salvation encompasses all of creation. The goal is not to be saved from our bodies, but to be saved with our bodies. Salvation is a very physical thing. So the goal of kingdom people now, this is you and me, if we're submitted to Jesus Christ, the goal is not to just sit around and wait to be taken away from the earth. Salvation isn't away from the earth. Rather, we're to be, we don't leave earth to go to heaven. Our job is to live in such a way that we are ushering heaven here in on earth. Bring in heaven, bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. God loves his real estate. And he's going to redeem his real estate. And our bodies, as well as every other part of, our, part of us, is part of that real estate. We belong to God. He wants it back. 
That's the ultimate salvation message. Read this in Revelation 21. I, I love this passage. This is the passage that talks about, uh, it, it really gives us a vision of God's victory being consummated in the end. But it's already in the process of happening. Revelation isn't just about what's going to happen in the future. It's about what's happening in the present right now. And here we see the heavenly city that Christ has prepared coming down to earth. It's really amazing. That there's this place that's prepared, the city, and it now comes down to earth. Notice that. And um, that totally gives a totally different spin on, on, on Jesus when he talks about, he says, you know, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also in John 14. And people typically take that to mean, oh, okay, he's going away, he's preparing a place, and then he's going to take us there. When, if you understand that passage in the light of Revelation 21 and about a thousand other verses that I could share, what he's saying is, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'll bring it to you. It's not, the goal isn't to go somewhere out there. No, it's, it's going to be here. In fact, in the, in, the, in, in the book of Revelation, the heavenly city, which is called the New Jerusalem, it is identified as the bride of Christ. Listen to this. It's such a funky... But the book of Revelation is, is so funky and so profound, and he mixes metaphors in the most interesting and genius and sometimes confusing ways. Here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Pause there for a moment. What he's saying is, is simply that the old earth that was under this corruption and uh, this bondage has now been uh, uh, done away with, and now, now the earth is the way it should be. It, now it's been replenished. It's new. It's not subject to decay any longer. Because there's no longer any sea. Now, the sea throughout the Bible is a metaphor uh, for chaos and destruction, cosmic forces uh, that threaten creation. They won't be around any longer when God's victory is finally consummated. And then John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You read a lot about that uh, in the Bible. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is John. He, he's mixing metaphors. Um, uh, there's a city, which see, you find throughout the Bible, but there's also the bride of Christ which you've all, you find throughout the Bible, the bride of Yahweh. And here he identifies the two. A city dressed up like a bride. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but this is the bride of Christ, the dwelling place of the people of God and the dwelling place of God. And I heard a loud voice, John goes on to say, by the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Praise God. Here's the new Jerusalem. It's the bride that's united with God. It's the bride that's been uh, filled with God. It's the bride that is wrapped in the radiance of God and the glory of God and the joy of God and the life of God. And now, now, now the bride and God will dwell together forever and ever and ever. And that is the consummation of God's plan for creation, at least so far as it's revealed to us human beings. This is the consummation of the whole thing. In some ways, it all echoes the incarnation where God becomes a human being. Well, now, now for all of humanity, we're encompassed in this dwelling of God. And where does this all happen? And this is the punchline. It happens here. The city comes down here. Now here, this earth is a redeemed earth. It's a purged earth. It's a perfected earth. But it is our earth. And it is God's earth. You notice throughout the, the, the Revelations 21, and this is true throughout the Bible, the imagery of this final state of being, the kingdom of God, uh, when God's victory is finally achieved, the imagery is all physical. So here you find you know, the, the streets of gold, and there's mansions of glory, and, 
And, and this is all imagery that would really speak to people in, in certain situations. Yeah, you have, uh, talk about these pillars and the brickwork and the river running through the city and the tree of life and other passages talk about the lion laying down with the lamb and, and all of this. But it's all physical imagery, symbolic for sure, but it's not symbolic of a sort of platonic heaven where we go in a disembodied state and float around the clouds. No, it's a very physical, perfected physical state of being. Ultimate heaven, or the ultimate kingdom of God, is not a disembodied, spiritual, non-physical, otherworldly, la-la land. No, it's, it's, it's perfected matter. Because matter matters to God, and he's going to redeem it. Which brings us to Luke 24, this passage that we looked at this morning. This, this perfect, eternal, new earth includes our perfect, now eternal bodies. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about the resurrection. The resurrection of our bodies. Perfected bodies. In the ancient Jewish worldview, and this is, I think, also the, the view of the New Testament, uh, many Jews at least believe that there was a life after death immediately. When you die, something about you goes on and is uh, aware of God. Some Jews believe that, some didn't. Uh, there's several verses in the New Testament that seem to indicate that that's what, what the New Testament uh, authors believed. Um, you know, the, you know the thief, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, and, and a few other verses like that. But... The important point to note, and I mentioned this on Easter, is that that wasn't the ultimate hope, the ultimate goal. For, for any ancient Jew or, or, or in the New Testament, the goal wasn't to have this disembodied existence with God immediately after death. That's not the resurrection. That's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is at the end of the age when, when our bodies shall be raised in a glorified form and be in that state with the Lord. The unique message of the Christians, as I mentioned on Easter, is that they said that, that that process has already begun, and it began with Jesus Christ. Jews typically believe that all humanity would be resurrected at the end of the age. And, and what the Christians were saying was, guess what? One popped out early. <laughs> Jesus, is the, he, he's ushering in this end times age. It's already happened. And, uh, and the fact that he is resurrected is proof that we all shall be resurrected. So what happened to him will happen to us. And notice what happened to him. He had flesh and bones and ate fish. He was physical. What happened to him was a physical thing. Which is why we can know that what will happen to us and what will happen to the whole cosmos, the whole creation, is a physical thing, a physical transformation, a physical salvation. Like like, like fire purging gold by burning away everything that's not gold. So also, God's love is a fire which shall, in the end, show up in a complete completely pure form, and will burn away everything that's not consistent with the character of God. It is the love of God, the infinite fire of God's love, but it's experienced as judgment if we refuse to be purified by it. It's the fire of God's love. It will burn away all dross and burn away all, all filth and burn away all violence and burn away all evil, all rebellion, all disease, all sickness, all decay, everything that's not in line with God's original creation plan is going to be burned away. And what's left, like gold going through the fire, will be refined and perfected. We will be like that. The creation will be like that. And Jesus is like that. That's why it says in 1 John 3, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. But remember, the way he is is flesh and blood. And we also will have flesh and blood in a perfected form. Now, we can't begin to conceive what this is like. We can't begin to imagine it. And it raises all sorts of questions that are completely unanswerable. Or at least we can guess at it, but what's the point? I mean, people ask questions like, okay, well, if we're going to have physical bodies, flesh and blood, uh, uh, 
How can that be if we're not going to age? Because the only kind of bodies we know are the ones that age. Or, or how can we have physical bodies, and Jesus has a physical body, and there's going to be a lot of us, if everyone from history who is in God's, you know, uh, who's, who's open to God is going to be in heaven, how are we going to get a private audience with Jesus? I mean, do we got to take tickets or something? And I really don't think that's the case. And that's where it's kind of reassuring to like, notice in this passage how funky Jesus' body is, and a, presumably our bodies will be funky too, but Jesus doesn't have to walk places. He just sort of teletransports there. I don't know how it's going to work, but don't worry about it. But it's, it's just a, a lot of oddness. People wonder, how, how can the lion lay down with a lamb? Any lion that would lay down with a lamb wouldn't be a lion. <laughs> I mean, we have to envision somehow lions without their, their carnivore teeth and intestines or whatever. What, is a, what does a redeemed lion look like? A vegetarian lion? I don't, I, who knows? The only lions we know, like the only bodies we know are, are these kind, and these kind are fallen. What are you going to do? Some people, you know, the, the Bible suggests, while it's, it's, it's permissible now, but there'll be no violence in heaven. That's the way it was before the fall, Genesis 1.31. And, and so some people wonder, how are we going to enjoy heaven if you're not going to be served up a juicy steak once in a while? Will it be to redeem cows or something that we eat and we don't have to kill them? How does that work? Or even worse, some people, you know, there are some passages that suggest, not saying this is a doctrine, but that seem to hint that there's not going to be any sex in heaven. So some folks wonder, how can heaven be heaven if there's no sex? That's hell. Yeah, which are you talking about? Here we just have to understand that we can't, however good you can imagine it, it would be better than that. It's better than anything we can conceive of. C.S. Lewis, my favorite author, uh, that I quote quite a bit here, on this question of sex, he says something I think is so profound. In his book on miracles, he's talking about heaven, the final state. He says this, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. <laughs> on receiving the answer, no, or at least not usually, <laughs> he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. Sex means no chocolates. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think about. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position, says C.S. Lewis. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, I love this phrase, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate Eternal fasting. <laughs> oh, heaven's going to be such a bore. There's no sex. It's going to be all, we've got to abstain for all eternity. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. But see here, the analogy works so well. Heaven will be such that the ecstasy of heaven will render the pleasure of, of sexuality as we experience now uh, irrelevant, entirely forgettable. <laughs> Man, am I censoring a lot of jokes right now. Um, <laughs> But you know that, 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 that heaven's got to be one incredible place. <laughs> Somebody here, I heard him whisper. Someone like, well, it's entirely forgettable now if you ask me, but I'm not going to point anyone out. <laughs> but see, here's the main point. Focus, Greg. The main point is this. That heaven's not the absence of physical pleasure. It's the perfection of physical pleasure. Okay? It, 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 it's, it's the fullness of, of physical pleasure. It is, in its own way, sensual. As C.S. Lewis said in, in another context... I forget the exact reference, but he goes, the kingdom of God, heaven, when it's here, 
the reds will be redder and the greens will be greener and our taste buds will just be more exquisite and our sense of touch far more profound and our sense of hearing uh, uh, fine-tuned and, and, and everything that we physical experience now will be perfected. We'll, we'll experience it in the nth degree. He says that the problem with us is not that our appetites are too strong, but we settle for, for they're, they're, too, they're too weak. We settle for so much less. We're created for this fullness of experience, but right now, in this present fallen condition, uh, we're dull. We're half awake. We don't experience each other, and we don't experience the creation around us in a full form. But when, when we go through the fire of God's love and are purified and all the dross is burned away, then we'll know even as we are known, Paul says, then we'll see clearly, then we'll understand, and then we'll experience physicality, the beauty of physicality, the, 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 the glory of matter the way we were always supposed to. And it'll be on earth and it will be in our bodies. Redemption is not redemption from the physical world, it's redemption of the physical world from a biblical perspective. Now, let me conclude by saying this. Here's why this is important. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. This changes a lot of things. Uh, once you get this, this frame of reference down, here's, here's two of the ways that it affects our, our view of things and the view of ourselves. First of all, this gives us, I think, a holistic view of our bodies. It can happen when a person uh, buys into this sort of platonic or Eastern worldview where we sort of see spirit as good and matter as bad can happen that a person starts to hate their body. You start to blame your body for all your problems and, and uh, declare war on your body. You can have a very negative view of your body. But see, our bodies are works of art. They're part of God's beautiful re- real estate, and they're going to be redeemed. They're good in and of themselves. Don't declare war on your body. Don't hate your body. You may not like the way it looks right now. You may not like the way it feels right now. Maybe it doesn't do for whatever reasons what it was supposed to do. In this fallen world, we take hits. And, and so arms don't always operate the way arms are supposed to operate, or legs, or, or what have you. It's a fallen war zone that we're in right now. So yes, the body as it is now, you know, you, you don't love everything about it. But the problem there is not your physical body itself. The problem is that we're in this war zone, and it's in a fallen condition. You can declare war on the sin that you do through your body, but, but don't declare war on your body itself. The body is good and is redeemable, and God's going to rescue it. Sometimes we have to. In fact, we always need to in this fallen world put our bodies in their place. We live in a culture that's conditioned to just you know, give in to every bodily whim that, 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 that we have. And, and so it's, it is a, there's a point, because everything has to be brought under the reign of God, and therefore there's a proper priority. There's a point where you say, body, here's the deal. I don't obey you, you obey me. You're, you, you're, you, I, I like you, you're a good body, uh, but uh, uh, you've got to be put in your place. And it's like a toddler that whines a lot. Sometimes you've got to you know, just kind of tell, tell the toddler who's boss. But a toddler isn't evil. No, no, it's not evil, it just needs to be disciplined. That's why fasting is a very good discipline for Christians to engage in, whether it's fasting from food or something else, but just to take something that your body craves and to say, no, for a period of time here, no. Because you've got to learn to, to be in subjection to me and my inner essence as I'm subjected to the Lord. Some of us were taught growing up that if it feels good, it must be wrong. I got that. Those nuns drove it into me. It's not, if, if it feels good, at least you should be suspicious. Now, we, in our culture, we say the opposite. If it feels good, it must be right. And that's also an untruth. But the, the, the holistic biblical perspective is this. Some things are supposed to feel good, and not only are they okay, uh, they're godly. It's an act of worship to feel good about the things that we're supposed to feel good with. 
It's good to enjoy your body. In the context of marriage, it's good to enjoy another person's body. And it's good to enjoy fine food and fine drink and dancing and exercise and physical existence. That's what it's there for. It has to be brought under the reign of God, but it's good in those contexts. The second thing that this holistic biblical perspective does for us is that it means caring for the earth and for animals is vitally important. Uh, this, this idea that we escape earth to go to heaven, while then everything on earth and everything in physical disappears, it has done so much harm throughout the ages. Because, as I said earlier, it, it conditions us to treat animals and the earth like they're mere props, sort of cardboard cut-ups on the stage that we have to pass through to get to the real show. They're just there, you know. There's no intrinsic worth. They're just there for our convenience. A tree is there for us to have paper, and the animals are just there for us to have fur or to, to, to wear fur. We don't have fur. They have the fur that we want it, so we get it, or, or to, to eat. And, and see, there is a proper role there where we're to have dominion over that, but they're not just props for our convenience. The first command in the Bible, and I think it's still our, our Magna Carta, uh, is take care of the... the take, God says to us, have dominion. Take care of my real estate and take care of my pets. We're to reflect God's character uh, towards the animals and towards the earth. As God has dominion over us, we're to have dominion over them. But notice this, God doesn't exploit us. So we're not supposed to exploit them. There's a mercy dimension of this and a caring dimension to this. Our job as kingdom people is to put on display now what the coming kingdom will look like as much as possible, which means right here, right now, we're to reflect God's character towards the earth and towards the animal kingdom. That's our, the active stewardship is foundationally important to God. Now, if this strikes you, as I'm sure it does to some, as a trivial point, or maybe even as a liberal agenda thing, oh, one of those tree-hugging types. Yeah. Go green. If, if that's the judgment that happens in your head, I understand it. If, you know, that's, if you've been just conditioned by this traditional theology, that's how you would see this. Consider the possibility that, however, you've appropriated, you've adopted a perspective that is not at all biblical. Uh, that you, you've adopted a hyper-spiritualized, very myopic, very narrow Western theology, self-serving theology, that says it's to our convenience to treat them like mere props. No intrinsic worth. We have no responsibility there. I want it, I get it. Consider the possibility that you've adopted an unbiblical perspective. And I encourage you just to be open to, to taking responsibility uh, for the environment and for the earth. It's, it's, it's a kingdom mandate. There's nothing trivial about it. God loves his real estate. We're supposed to love it too. God loves his pets. We're supposed to love them too. So I end with this question. The Holy Spirit helps to be honest about this. We, we need to live in this question. This is the, the question that arises out of Genesis 1.26 where God says, have dominion over the, the earth and animals. You're made in my image. See, we're, we're, we're little examples of what he is. He's God of the whole universe, but he puts us in charge of this, this, this domain, the earth. How do my lifestyle and food choices impact the earth and animals? Live in that question. And let the Holy Spirit deal with you on that. How do my lifestyle cho- uh, and food choices impact the earth and animals? In fact, it's always good to do life in community, so I would put it, how do our lifestyle and food choices impact the earth and animals? It's good to ask this with another person or five other people to say, can, can, can we pray about this and wrestle with this and remind one another and, 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 and explore this together? There's a lot of resources out there. 
Most of us are 98% ignorant of how our choices impact the environment and the animals. But it's our responsibility to learn. And no, ignorance is no excuse. Not when the information is available. And so here's a few ways that you can begin to explore this. In terms of creation care, one of the best websites out there that I know of is called creationcare.org. How your choices impact the, the, the environment. And it gives you options. Here, here's a way to get what you want, but without causing the negative impact on the environment that, uh, that, that maybe the, the way you're doing it now uh, impacts the environment. In terms of animal care and our responsibility there, a wonderful website is allcreatures.org. You could easily spend a half a day on that website, if not more. It's got so much information. Every possible you know, aspect of, of this issue. And no, and no, these are just two examples. And every website's got its own agenda. And it may fit with the kingdom agenda, it may not. So you've got to always weigh that into it. But be informed. Just learn about these things. Another, another starting point uh, might be, I wrote a book called The Myth of a Christian Religion. Not a nation. I wrote that too, but this is a different book. People get them confused. The Myth of a Christian Religion. And there's a chapter in there on, on our responsibility to live um, out the, the creation mandate of Genesis 1. And, take, and, and have, show compassion and care for the environment and for the animal kingdom. Another uh, re- possible resource is we'll be having a Q&A on heaven uh, on, on June 7th. There's been a lot of buzz created recently by Rob Bell's book that I endorsed uh, called, what was it called? Love Wins. And um, yeah, so the, right now this is kind of a hot topic. And, and so we thought, uh, let's talk about heaven and hell. Uh, we'll have a Q&A on that on June 7th. And so you're invited to come and be a part of that. So just live in the question, do research, find out about stuff. And know that, here's, here's the thing. There's not a one size fits all on this. We're not coming up with rules about this. Uh, where you are today may be different than where you're going to be in five years. And, and, and where you are is maybe different from where I am. And, and, and so we've got to give each other and give ourselves space to grow on this. But what's important is that we're living in the question. And not judging one another or anything like that. But we are you know, trying to honestly listen to the voice of God as we grow in this, our foundational kingdom mandate. We are flesh and blood. We're always going to be flesh and blood. We're always going to have a physical earth. We're always going to have a physical creation. It's good. Though it's fallen right now, but it's going to be redeemed. And start taking care of it right now. I'm going to end in prayer. I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward as I close. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever to, that you'd like to have prayed for, um, we really believe in the power of prayer, and we encourage you to do so as well. Come forward and, and receive prayer from these, these fine folks. Father, help us to live in this question. I pray, Lord God, that we would have a kingdom perspective on our bodies, and though they can be aggravating sometimes, and though we have to discipline them, and, but God, help us to see them as good. There's nothing you create that's bad. It can be infected with stuff and polluted, but help us to see and affirm and live in the goodness of our physical bodies, the goodness of this physical earth, the goodness of of this physical creation, every part of it. And Father, help us to live as responsible kingdom stewards of this plot of land that you've put us in charge of. Deepen our awareness. Expand our awareness. Help us to swim upstream in the culture when we need to, to reflect your heart for the earth, for the animals. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of kingdom people said. God bless you guys. Go out. Build a kingdom. Love you.